Before we get into our study tonight, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, so we plan on finishing First Kings, the book we're currently in, uh, on the 10th of February. The 17th and the 24th will not have our routinely scheduled through the Bible service. Um, the 17th will be, uh, we'll just be off, and then on the 24th, there's going to be a worship night. Uh, the simple reason being that I'm going to be out of state. I'm going to be in California for both of those weeks. And so uh, we, will, uh, we will continue to have this service through February 10th, where we'll finish 1 Kings, and then we'll begin 2 Kings again the first Sunday in March. And if you'd like to come out for the worship night on the 24th, of course, you're welcome to do so. Although the time is different on that. Is that right, Matt? That's at 6 instead of 7? No, we're at 6 instead of 7. That's good. Okay. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. Um, all right, so we pick up tonight in 1 Kings. And I think this is the hardest section of the narrative of 1 Kings and maybe 2 Kings to study. Uh, and the reason's a simple one. It's because it's all bad news. There's, there's very little on the other hand tonight. You know, when we open our Bibles next week, we'll have Elijah. And then following his ministry, we'll have Elisha. Uh, and there's these things, you know, uh, that exist. But for the most part, uh, we're going to roll through kings, individual kings, different dynasties uh, in Judah and Israel tonight. Uh, and we basically are just going to take a few laps around the downward spiral. Um, and, uh, and that can be discouraging. And so as we do so... It's helpful to keep in mind uh, both where we've already been. You may remember that uh, Kings opens uh, with the reign of Solomon at the pinnacle of Israel's history, uh, the most of the promised land they have under their domain, the wealthiest they've ever been, a wise king at their head, a beautiful temple which God's glory has filled. It seems as if all the promises of Israel have come to be in the reign of Solomon. But as we saw, Solomon loved many foreign women and they turned his heart from the Lord. And so just, just through the idolatry of him and his many wives and uh, the misleading that happens to the nation of Israel, we get the first major component of the rest of the story, all the way through 1 Kings, all the way through 2 Kings, which is that Israel is split. And so the southern tribes, specifically Judah and Benjamin, still rally around the throne of David and his lineage, whereas the northern tribes, uh, the other 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, go through not just king after king, but dynasty after dynasty. Um, and, and Israel basically, by the end of the book, uh, is removed from the land by the hand of Assyria and the judgment of God. And then a little bit later, Judah, who doesn't learn the lessons of their own uh, neighboring Israel, uh, go through the same thing and end up in Babylon. Um, the second thing that, that makes these chapters hard to study uh, is not just uh, that thematically it's basically just a repetition of I told you so, or I've already warned you, or here's how we got to where we are, um, but also because it's not written uh, in a way that we would normally read history. 
okay? What I mean is Hebrew narrative has a tendency to want to finish the story it's telling and then double back and tell other stories that are parallel to that story. And so if we were watching Game of Thrones, God forbid, uh, the story would move forward chronologically, okay? But that's not how this book works. And so that means sometimes we'll cover a single king's reign and that's 50 years. And then we'll go back and we'll do all of the kings that lived consecutive to him uh, and we have to move back and forth between Judah and Israel related to that because the names are so foreign. We already saw we're trying to maintain the difference between Rehoboam the son of Solomon, who's ruling over Judah, and Jeroboam, who's contemporary to him and ruling over Israel. Um, But we will also find a similar thing when Asa is reigning in Judah and Basha is reigning in Israel. Uh, And we've met the prophet Ahijah, and then we'll meet Elijah, and then finally Elisha. Uh, And so it can be hard to keep track of these things. This is the type of study uh, where I actually like to get out some sort of graphing tools and take notes and shape things. What you need is a flowchart or an infographic to, to really keep a handle on all these things. And I'll do the best I can uh, to keep us on track tonight, but I wouldn't be surprised if I get confused and tongue-tied in trying to do so. Um, however, this is still significantly valuable scripture for us because Israel's history from this point on basically reiterates the same thing the whole Old Testament does. It reiterates God's faithfulness, okay? And we see that faithfulness on two fronts. One of them is, uh, is unsurprising and obvious, which is that God has faithfully warned his people about consequences, and the consequences come. We'll see that over and over again. The other one is unique to God's character, which is that he's faithful despite all of the unfaithfulness of his people. His plan is not unrailed or derailed by these things, but he continues to move towards their fulfillment, even though it seems like the people are moving further and further away from it. Uh, And so we'll see both of those things tonight, but let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Now, Here we find a prophet, and I want you to notice that here he's not named, he's just a man of God. In fact, he's one of many throughout the stories of 1 and 2 Kings that show up over and over again. One of the components that begins with the kings of Israel all the way back with Saul uh, is the prophetic component of Israel's history. God raises up prophet after prophet to operate as his mouthpiece to the kings of Israel and to the people of Israel. Uh, And so we'll encounter many of them. In fact, I think we'll encounter uh, three or four tonight. Uh, But this first one, notice he comes out of Judah and he goes to Bethel. In other words, he lives under the rule of Rehoboam, but he's headed to speak to Jeroboam, okay? He's headed to speak to the king over the ten tribes in Israel. Uh, Jeroboam has built two golden calf altars in Israel, one in Bethel, uh, one somewhere else, sorry, Uh, and the goal is basically to keep them from going to the temple. He says, if I start my own worship calendar with my own priesthood and my own altars, then I can keep them from going to Jerusalem to worship and defecting back to King David. And so he starts this syncretic 
worship campaign just to do this. And so here, a prophet comes to speak to Jeroboam in Bethel. Notice this, it continues in verse 1. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, okay? So he's not just the president of his idolatrous campaign, he's also a client, right? He, he himself is worshiping at these altars, and that's where the man of God meets him. Verse 2, the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord. Now, I actually think that's really striking, okay? Now, if you read through the prophetic ministries of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, as well as the prophetic books like Jeremiah, you will find uh, that the things the prophets do are often big and dramatic and symbolic, like lay on your side in view of the city for 40 days and then roll over and lay on your other side for 40 days, like I want you to go around completely naked type of symbolic. These are the types of things the prophets do. Uh, as we saw last week, um, Jeroboam's already seen a very dramatic prophet who actually appointed him to his ministry, okay? The prophet comes to him, and he's got a brand new garment on, and as he's walking up to him on the road, he tears it, and then he tears it into ten pieces and two pieces, and he gives ten of them, right? It's symbolic. It's very picturesque. What's striking here is not only is it symbolic and picturesque, but he doesn't start with Jeroboam at all. He speaks to the altar, he doesn't start with uh, how off track Jeroboam's reign is. He deals specifically with this worship. And so the man, verse 2, cried against the altar by the word in the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And so he speaks prophetically about a Judean king, a descendant of David who is to come, who he names by name Josiah, who will end this altar by desecrating it, by taking the priests of it and burning them alive or, or dead on the altar. Um, now, just timestamp, Josiah is hundreds of years later, okay? Pretty near to the end of this history uh, of First and Second Kings. But this prophet names it by name and says this altar is going to end. The syncretic worship that you've started is going to end. In fact, he continues. He says, verse 3, He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Okay. And so he says, here's how you know what I'm saying, which is not going to happen in your lifetime, not going to happen in my lifetime, but much later is actually going to happen. He says, this you're going to see with your own eyes. The altar is going to split in half and its ashes are going to spill on the ground. Now, this is a significant point because when you go back to the prophetic office as it's de designed in Deuteronomy, um, they are to distinguish between true and false prophets, because what a false prophet says doesn't happen, right? That's the quickest way to tell a false prophet is that they were wrong, okay? Um, now, Deuteronomy also maintains that even if they do those things, and yet their message is to move you away from the God of Israel, in other words, if they contradict what God has already said, then you're still not to listen to them. But because of that litmus test of the prophets, we find this throughout their ministries, a mixture of here and now prophecy and miraculous and far prophecy. In fact, in the written prophets, okay, Elijah and Elisha, we have their words written down in these books, and it may even be that their ministry was involved in the writing of some of these books. 
But when we get to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, we call those the written prophets because we believe those books to be the direct product of their writing, okay? And so it's not just a ministry of prophecy that's recorded in history, it's a prophetic work recorded in the author's name. So what's interesting is the written prophets also follow this aspect. And so if you read, they're organized in the front half, focusing on things that they said that came to be during the life of the prophet. And then the back end of the book is things that go well beyond their time. Okay? If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel begins by focusing on what actually happened in Daniel's life, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace and all of that. And then in the second half, it starts to move way beyond that. It's the same in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all things that are somewhat contemporary to the entire life of Isaiah, things that he would have seen to come to pass with his own eyes. But you turn to chapter 40 and it looks way beyond and suddenly he's starting to talk about Cyrus, the king of Persia, who's going to bring Israel back into the land 70 years after they go out of it, way after the lifetime of Isaiah. And that's where we find the messianic promises, okay, where it starts to look beyond, the, uh, beyond this time, beyond the 400 years before the Testaments, all the way up to the days of Jesus and beyond. In the same way here, this prophet gives a litmus test so that, uh, so that Jeroboam can know for sure this horrible set of curses is going to come upon his family. And so, verse 4, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. Okay, and so get this. He, he basically just says, arrest that guy, and he points. Okay, notice what happens. His hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And so instantly, his hand as he's pointing shrivels up and he lo loses the ability uh, to manipulate his fingers and his arm, and it's just stiff and stuck. Um, and then notice verse 5, the altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign the man that God had given by the word of the Lord. So while he's doing this, this all happens very fast, he says, get him, and then he loses control over his hand and then the altar just splits in half and the ashes spill out, okay, just as a prophet said he would. Now, we do see something here which we're going to see continuously, okay, which is according to the kings, especially of Israel, but also the bad kings of Judah, the quickest way to deal with a prophetic message you don't like is to just silence the prophet. And so we're going to see as these people who come as God's mouthpiece and represent God are thrown in prison, uh, are banished from the kingdom, are driven out, uh, are not listened to, etc. Um, and it's, it's worth pointing out here that what happens here all the way through chapter 13 is paradigmatic. We'll come back to that. But the reason why these stories are all piled up here, both this prophet and then the, the two more that we're going to read about in a second, is it's setting up for these ideas. Um, and so, verse 6, The king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and he became as it was before. And so he's struck by this, and he basically asks humbly for the man he just tried to get arrested for him to pray for him, and he does so, and his hand is restored. Now, I think that's interesting. I think it's worth keeping in mind here, uh, because remember, what has just happened? 
everything that he said would happen. The altar's broken, the ashes have been spilled out. He's tried to take action against him and miraculously, physically, God has interfered with his body to make his point known on that. Uh, and he recognizes now who has the upper hand, who has the power in this. And so he humbly asks for help. But that's not going to change his path. He's interested in a healthy arm, but he's not interested in repentance. And this is another thing we'll see. It almost seems as if the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah who stand against the prophets see prophets as being powerful. In fact, we'll see, they often want to get on their good side. They try and manipulate them into saying better things because they believe that what they say will come to pass, but they're completely disconnected from the reality behind it of God's sovereignty, of God's message to them. It reminds me of the Pharisees when we get to the ministry of Jesus, who were constantly exposed to Jesus doing the impossible, giving sight to a man who was born blind, right, in John chapter 9. And they quiz the man born blind because they're upset because somebody gave this guy sight on the Sabbath, and that's not okay. And so they're pushing him, and at first they're like, well, he probably wasn't actually born blind, so they bring in his parents. And his parents are afraid to answer, and they say, he's old enough to speak for himself. Let him speak. And John gives us a little insight. He says the reason is because they've already come to their conclusion that anyone who identifies Jesus as the Messiah, they're going to throw in prison. They're only seeking to deal with the problem despite the evident miracle in front of them. It's the same when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay? That's a significant thing on your resume. People are struck by this. They're beginning to talk. The Jewish religious leaders that stand against Jesus are so distraught about this. Not only do they plot Jesus' death, but Lazarus's. Because if they can put him back into the ground, there's no evidence walking the earth that Jesus did this thing. The scary thing is, the Pharisees or even King Jeroboam, these are not abnormally super rebellious, terrible people. This, we have to remember, you know, what we learned after the Nazis were put on trial in Nuremberg, the banality of evil. These are just human beings. What we see here is what the human heart is capable of. And we are tremendously capable of, of stubborn resistance to God, even when we encounter his power and would label it as such. That's why some come to Jesus Uh, Well, actually, it's in Jesus' parable of the rich man uh, and Lazarus, right? Different Lazarus than the one we just talked about. And so in the parable, the rich man and Lazarus die, and the rich man ends up in torment, and Lazarus ends up being comforted in Abraham's bosom, awaiting, basically, God's fulfillment of his promises. And for some reason, they can see across the divide between these two areas, and the rich man cries out for Lazarus to just get permission from an angel to just quench his thirst, just a drop of water. And an angel explains to him that the distance can't be bridged. And he says, well, what about my relatives who are still alive? Send them somebody to do miracles, to just raise, raise Lazarus from the dead. Send him back as a witness. And the angel says, if they didn't listen to Moses, why would they listen to miracles even if the dead were raised? I'll give you one more example, and this one's inside the church. At the end of the Gospels, when Jesus gathers everybody on the mount before he's about to to ascend, okay, 
in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that people standing there, many of them believed in Jesus. Why? Because he's standing right in front of them. The same Jesus they ate with, the same Jesus they saw preach, the same Jesus they saw crucified. And then it says, but some doubted. That's what Mark tells us what it was like in the early church, okay? Miracles do not equal belief. And that's not because miracles aren't miraculous. It's because that's how hard the human heart can be. That's how blind uh, we can be in our blindness. And that's, that's where Jeroboam's at. He doesn't even tap out and go, okay, God, obviously you're calling the shots. I'm going to back off here. And so this happens, and then notice verse 8 continues. The man of God said to the king, uh, sorry, we skipped verse 7. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Now, because the ESV says reward, you can probably pick up on, on what's actually going on here. But it's worth remembering here, we're talking about a hospitality culture. To enjoy someone's hospitality is to affiliate with them, to align yourself with them. Basically, he goes, this guy's pretty powerful. I'd rather have him on my side. To put it in a different way, he thinks, how can I get this guy in my pocket? How can I pay him off so that he only speaks for me? And again, this is not uncommon. Think of Balaam, right? Balak, this king who hates Israel and is afraid of the threat that they bring, he pays Balaam and he says, I just want you to curse them. I know who you curse is cursed, who you bless is blessed. And Balaam says, okay, you can hire me, but I can only say what God tells me to say. And so Balaam blesses him, and Balak gets frustrated, and it happens over and over again. But what does he want? He wants the power of the word of the prophet. And that's what Jeroboam wants here. But notice verse 8, the man of God said to the king, if you give me half of your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat the bread nor drink the water nor return by the way that you came. And he says, I'm not going to take anything you offer me, even if you give me half your kingdom. Give me the second-in-command office in the kingdom. I'm not going to take it. He says, in fact, I've been commanded to take nothing from you, not even food or drink. I'm not even to stay here, and when I go home, I'm not even supposed to go the way I came. I'm supposed to complete a circuit and keep walking. I'm not to turn back. Okay. So, verse 10, he went another way and did not return by that way that he came to Bethel. Now, why does God lay out that restriction? It's a high one, isn't it? Don't stay there, don't eat there, don't drink anything while you're doing it, go home a different way. It's because the ministry of a prophet is high stakes. In fact, as we're going to see in just a moment, Israel is full of, hold on, prophets. It's full of air quote prophets. It's full of people who identify themselves as those who speak for God and do not. And guess what? It's a prosperous career. By the time Elijah gets on the scene, there's going to be uh, hundreds and hundreds of Baal's prophets who are speaking for him. When we get to Jeremiah's ministry, there's going to be a whole group of false prophets whose only message to the king is a convenient one. Everything's golden, king. God has peace and prosperity and everything for you, Right? And those are the ones the kings want in their corner. Those are the ones that they, they want to have. Um, and so here, this restriction is not a usual thing. This is not your average Christian commitment. Okay? What we see here is high stakes. Okay. 
So verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he spoke to the king, and their father said to them, Which way did he go? And the son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to the sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So now we find another unnamed prophet, this one from the land of Israel, and he hears about everything we just read from his sons. And so he says, saddle up my donkey, I'm going for a ride. And so, verse 14, he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak, and he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Okay. Now, Suspicious? Isn't it? It's a strange request. We've already been told that his sons have laid out the entirety of his conversation with the king, and now he comes and it's almost as if he's testing the prophet. And we don't know if or why, we just know that. But it's strange, isn't it? He goes out of his way to track this guy down and invite him over for dinner. So verse 16, he said, I may not return with you to go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into the house that he may eat bread and drink water. Notice, but he lied to him. Once again, super interesting. What is this guy's MO? I would suggest to you that this prophet feels threatened in his livelihood because this other prophet has upstaged him. Now, once again, we see a weird thing in the character of this prophet, and probably an air quotes prophet. We're going to see something significant is going to happen, and he's going to speak for the Lord in a second, but we don't have to believe that's in his past. Um, but he's threatened here, and yet at the same time, he believes that when God really speaks, it's really serious. The same thing happens with Balaam. Finally, Balaam goes, I'm sorry, I just can't say anything that God doesn't tell me to say. I cannot curse Israel. They will surely be blessed. But then we're told Balaam has an idea. He goes, you know, there is a way that you can get Israel to be a curse to themselves. He says, take your most attractive women get them to be the most scantily clad, and have them worship your gods on the edge of Israel's camp. Everything else will take care of itself. All right, and he sets up this trap. But despite that, there's this understanding of the, the truth and the validity of the word of God, and this prophet is actually using that against him. He knows the consequences are coming, so he lies and says, oh no, God told me it's fine. He told me you were coming over for dinner. It's good. Okay. And unfortunately, notice here, uh, verse 20, and they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Okay, so notice, he went back with him, he ate bread in his house and drank water. He goes, he goes, oh, okay, he comes home, and as they're sitting there, the prophet who had brought them back, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Now, as we're going to see, that's exactly what's going to happen. But whose mouth is speaking this here? The air quotes prophet, 
right? The prophet of Judah, the one who has trapped him. And the Spirit of the Lord overcomes him. He speaks with the word of the Lord, and as we'll see, he speaks truthfully here. Uh, and it is a word of judgment for the prophet for not keeping the command that God gave him so clearly. And that kind of completes the parallel with Balaam full circle, because you may remember when Balaam first is invited by Balak back in the book of Numbers to go and curse the people, he, he says, well, I'll pray about it. And he hears very clearly and obviously, as only a prophet can, no, don't go with him. So he comes back and says as much. He says, I'm sorry, I can't go. And the king goes, I'll double your salary. And he goes, let me get a second opinion. And so he goes back and he prays again. And this time God says, go with him. But then there's the angel with the flaming sword and the donkey who saves his life time after time in spite of his anger, right, to get his attention. Okay. I don't think we should suggest, although there's one way where this is helpful, that when it comes to what God says in our life, we need to be chronologically consistent. In other words, first word trumps latter words. Except, except in the sense of what Scripture is. That's why in the New Testament tells us to test words of prophecy. How do we do that? We hold it up to the light of Scripture. We ask, who is God? What has he said? And how does this fit in that revelation? Okay. Um, but this guy had a very clear word. Would you agree? So clear that he quotes it verbatim, not once, but twice. He is clear on what's supposed to happen here. But like I said, the story is being told to us not just to say, you know, be careful for false words or stick to what you know to be true or something like that. It's actually to lay out what's going to be the pattern for the rest of the book, which is that God is going to speak and those who don't heed his word, there's going to be consequences for. And there are going to be those who speak for God and those who do not speak for God. And there's going to be some confusion on what's what. And at the same time, there's literally no confusion at all. And so here he says, you're not going to be buried in your father's tomb. Verse 23, after he had eaten bread and drunk, I imagine the rest of that meal was awkward, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he'd brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it and the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Okay. So he sends him on his way in his donkey. He's killed in the road by a lion. And then people observe as they're walking by this corpse laying in the road with a lion on the left and a donkey on the right just sitting there. And this is told in the prophet city. He hears about it, verse 26, when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, is it the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord? Or excuse me, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. Now, what's the deal with the lion and the donkey sitting quietly beside? Okay. What does that do? It removes it from the realm of chance, removes it from the realm of the natural. Lions attack people. That happens. That's a risk of being in Israel to the degree that Proverbs talks about some sluggards who use that as an excuse never to leave the house at all. I can't go to work today. There's lions, right? We don't really feel that fear, but it was a significant thing. But this is not business as usual lion attack, right? This lion's calmly and quietly. It didn't eat the corpse. It didn't drag it away. It's sitting next to a donkey. The donkey is fine, right? 
God wants everyone to know that this is his judgment. And that's going to be another thing that we're going to see consistently. Sometimes, especially in Israel, especially tonight, we're just going to see politics play out the way we would expect them to. Jesus says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and so often bloody uh, power takeovers are followed by what? More bloody power takeovers. And we'll see a lot of that tonight. But we will also see once again that everything that the word, uh, every word of the Lord shall come to pass. And so, verse 27, he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me, and they saddled it. And he went and found the body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city. Remember, where's he from? He's from Judah. This prophet brings him back to his own hometown, uh, to Bethel to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and he mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. Now we're stuck with a conundrum here. Is this a change in heart? Keep reading. Verse 31, after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones besides his bones. For the saying he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the house in the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Now, two things there. One, he goes, this guy was clearly a prophet. He recognizes that. But two, he says, I want to be buried right next to him, snuggle up my bones with his. Why? Because he wants reputation by association. Right? He, he wants to be identified with, you know, uh, think, think of other occasions of this, you know. There's amazing and beautiful ones, like in the Bible when uh, Jacob tells his sons, bury me next to Leah. And it's this beautiful surprise in the story, Leah, the unwanted wife. Rachel is buried in Ramah, but Jacob says, bury me with Leah, right? He lives out the long of his days until Leah dies, and that's where he wants to be. There's also, you know, the famous historical saying, bury my shell at wounded knee. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said shell. That's Ninja Turtles reference. Uh, but nonetheless, right, there, this is the association. He wants these two identities to be aligned together. Yes, he was a real prophet of God and I was not, but I told him what was going to happen if he went home, right, if he came home with me. This is the idea here. Verse 23, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. After these things, after all of this goes you know, withered hand, broken altar, restored hand, prophet who refuses a meal and then takes a meal and then dies uh, from a conveniently unhungry lion, right? All of these things happen. How does it affect Jeroboam? Jeroboam did not turn from the evil way. Unfortunately, that's the theme of the rest of Jeroboam's line and the dynasty after him and all of Israel's kings. It's going to be consistently, despite the constant witness of God, no repentance. And so, from here, at this point in his life, he made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests to the high places, like those websites online. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Okay. And so, here is the problem. Jeremiah's had a warning. Now he's about to have consequences. We saw the same thing with Saul. Saul has a warning, but the next time a prophet comes, he comes with consequences. And so, chapter 14, verse 1, 
At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Okay, now notice this. We see that same tension again. Here, Jeroboam's son is sick. He goes, okay, let's go get a diagnosis from the prophet. But he tells his wife to disguise herself. Not so she won't be recognized, you know, by your average Israelite. So she won't be recognized by the prophet. Why? Because he wants the best chance at a good diagnosis. And he knows if he's unrepentant Jeroboam, there's no chance of that. So he tries to trick the prophet. And so he says, go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who said of me that I should be king over the people. How does he know Ahijah is the real deal? Because he's sitting on the throne, just as Ahijah promised. Verse 3, take with you ten loaves, some cakes and a jar of honey, excuse me, honey, and go to him. What is that? That's incentive. And he will tell you what happened to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now, Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And so she comes in disguise, but on top of that, he's completely blind. He can't see at all, but he can hear, and that's a problem. Verse 5, the Lord said to Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? Remember, he can't, it's not just that he can't see her, he also can't see her costume, her disguise. It doesn't matter. He lays it all on the table before she gets a word in edgewise, for I am charged with unbearable news for you. Okay. Before the bread's broken out, before the honey's presented, before she brings it up, he has a word. In fact, um, that phrase there, I am charged with unbearable news to you. If you have an older translation, you'll see this. He says, I've been sent to you with bad news. She came to him, but it says in the Hebrew, I was sent to you, right? God is working sovereignly and fully in these circumstances. And so verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people of Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. Now, earlier, from Ahijah, God had promised that if, Jer uh, if Jeroboam would follow in David's footsteps, even though he was really just a judgment on Solomon, that God would bless that and that his children would reign perpetually over Israel. All of that was laid on the table, but that hasn't happened, and so now he says that there will be no dynasty for Jeroboam. He says, I'll bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Now, there's a very vivid play on words there that's, that's not represented in the ESV. Um, but there, when it says every man, it's, it's literally everyone who pisses on the wall. Okay, that's how the King James puts it. I think there's a TH at the end, who pisseth on the wall. But that's what it says, and that's literally the Hebrew here, okay? 
That's strong imagery, and it's a reference to the fact that men pee standing up. That's the idea. But it's also tied to this idea of dung. He basically says, you guys have treated the palace like a bathroom. I'm going to take you out like refuse. Okay, that's the idea here. It's very strong. Uh, That's another thing we find in the prophets. I wouldn't call them uncouth, uh, but their statements are significant uh, in their metaphor, and so sometimes they're very provocative, and that's how it is here. Okay. And so he says, as a man burns up dung until it's gone, verse 11, Any, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. In other words, no proper burials, no proper funerals. Okay. Um, moreover, verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 12, arise therefore and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Remember, what's the relationship here? Future tense, off in the distance, present tense, sign. Okay, And so he says, on top of that, the son that you came to inquire, he's going to die. But notice that this, this is very interesting. He says, um, verse 13, And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. The rest of Jeroboam's descendants, no burial, no mourning, just carcasses in the wilderness or in the city, but not this one boy. And then notice what it says. He says, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And honestly, I think that's a hard statement because he basically says, you know, there's actually one good person in your household and he's going to die as soon as you get home. Okay. Now that is a judgment on Jeroboam's sin, and we see this constantly in Scripture, the relationship between the sins of the parents and the consequences coming upon the children. But I also need you to see it in a broader light here, which is that effectively, and forgive me, I just don't know a better way to put this, but he's going to die with a clean record. We don't know that would be the case if he continued to grow up in Jeroboam's household, under Jeroboam's influence. And we need to remember that there are some things that are worse than death, according to the scripture. And so it may be, in the words of C.S. Lewis, that what we're seeing here is a severe mercy. He's being delivered from a wicked household without being corrupted. It's still sad and it's still horrible, but it's not the whole story. It's one of the reasons why I think understanding the reality of final judgment and heaven is so significant. Because in the Bible, as well as the rest of life, how else do we reconcile the things that we encounter? If this is all there is, then the moral of the story is awful. But can God be gracious to this child the day he dies and forevermore? Absolutely. And so this is laid out on the table. And then notice what he says today. He says, um, verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Now, once again, we're quite a ways away from that happening, but it's here at the very beginning of the history of the ten tribes on their own, that this promise is given, that this is where this is heading. It's heading out past the Euphrates, under the hand of the Assyrians, and it's going to come to pass. Why then is there everything in the middle? We have promise up front, 
We have judgment at the end. What do we have in the middle? We have patience. We have constant and perpetual, long-suffering God-given patience. Filled with warnings. But he knows the end from the beginning. He knows where this is headed. He lays it all out here. And then notice he says that Israel's going to be like a reed shaken in the water. In other words, there's no political stability for the future of Israel. Okay? The most stable time they have uh, is when Jezebel is wreaking havoc. That's actually a long period, the run of Omri and his sons. Uh, but it's not good. The rest of it is just political upheaval, left and right, which is what we'll see in just a minute. So this is laid on the table, verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tisra. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the prophet. Before we move on here, let me remind you of one last time that this book was written by someone after the exile. That's why the book goes up to the exile. Okay, and so everyone who's reading 1 Kings in the original audience knows where these things are headed. And now, as painful as it is, they're reviewing how they got here, and step by step, it's been, don't take another step. I've already told you, don't head that way. That way leads to destruction. That way leads to death. And so here we see that laid out and reiterated here. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred, how he reigned. Behold, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, which we'll study eventually. Uh, and the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Now, that last statement's a little bit weird. It goes, wait a minute. I thought it was death and destruction coming for the household of Jeroboam, but we're left here with his son just stepping onto the throne, business as usual. Hold on to that. Now, like I said, we move back to the beginning and we start again with Rehoboam, who's ruling over, Israel, over Judah, verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. Does that language sound familiar? It's the same criticism the prophet makes against Jeroboam. Or, uh, yes, Jeroboam. I raised you up to replace David, but you've done worse than anyone before you. We see the same claim laid at Judah's feet here. Verse 23, for they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also male cult prostitutes in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so the great risk to Judah throughout is going to be adapting the worship of the Canaanites, of the original people of the land, uh, and worshiping their gods instead. Verse 25, in the fifth year, of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. Rehoboam gains a perfect kingdom. Total peace, complete prosperity. He drives it for 40 years and he drives it into the ground. Right? And one of the things that happens is Shishak who we already encountered last week. He's already been kind of prowling on the edges looking for an opportunity, but now he takes it and he just attacks. And notice verse 
verse 26, he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king house. He took away everything. He sounds like the Grinch. He took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Notice how King Rehoboam responds. King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the offices or the guards who kept them in the door of the king's house. Solomon's was a golden age, and now he just replaces it with bronze. It's all he can do. His wealth is starting to disappear. The golden shields have been stolen, and so he makes bronze and pretends that's business and usual. But the thing we need to remember is the promise that Nathan made to David. You see, David came to God and he said, God, I live in a palace. You live in a tent. I want to make you a house. And God says, I've got a different plan. I'm going to make you a house. One of your sons is going to reign perpetually. And he says, he will be like a son to me. And when he goes astray, I will discipline him. That's what this is. It's discipline. Okay. Here, God is faithful to warn Rehoboam through letting in enemies, through playing out the um, covenant curses of Deuteronomy to remind Israel, hey, you're off track, repent, come back to me. And that's what's playing out here. And instead of going before the Lord, he just makes a new set of shields out of his own pocket, but they're only bronze. That's all he can do. So verse uh, 27, King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and then brought them back to the guard room, which I think, here's what that's suggesting. They don't hang in the palace anymore. And I don't know if that's because he's embarrassed of them. More likely, since he wants them in show when he's out in force, they're too valuable to leave out in the open anymore. It's too dangerous to keep them on display, so they keep them locked up, and they're only used ceremonially out in the public during times of peace when the king can, you know, walk the streets of Jerusalem. Now the rest, verse 29, of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. Okay, so on top of that, not only does he have Shishak to the south in Egypt, but he's also fighting with Rehoboam, the king over Israel, and so he's fighting war on both sides, which is a bad place to be uh, in war. Verse 30, and there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was name of the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Now, notice here, his story opens and closes with the name of his mom and the reference to the fact that she's an Ammonite. Another thing that we're going to see throughout Israel's history here is the significance that king mothers play uh, throughout the story and how strong their influence is. And so it's most likely here that it's connecting the dots. Why is it that under Rehoboam, Judah embraced uh, it's because he has this mixed marriage upbringing and he's very comfortable with grafting these things in. But notice here, his son, Abijam, reigns in his place. And now we move forward to Abijam. Now, in the 18th year of the king of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, okay, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Do you see here how David is the litmus test? Over and over again, he did like David, or he did not do like David, but followed in the footsteps of Rehoboam. Those are going to be the constant refrains throughout this book. Verse 4, nevertheless, for David's sake, 
the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him, establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so notice here, the only reason Abijam stays on the throne and Abijam's son is going to take the throne is because of David. It's extended mercy because of David's faithfulness, because of God's covenant to David. And so he says, I'm going to hold on to Jerusalem. I'm going to continue the lineage of David. But it's not because we have righteous kings in Judah and unrighteous kings in Israel. Now, to be fair, not a single king in the entire history of Israel, the ten tribes, gets a good record. Not one. But only four. Only four in the history of all of David's descendants get a good statement in this book. Okay. Uh, and one of those happens to be Asa, Abijam's son. And so, um, verse 6, now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did are not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In other words, he steps into his dad's shoes and it's business as usual. He continues the idolatrous worship. He continues fighting wars on the borders. And then verse 9, Asa takes over. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years. Now, remember how I told you we're moving back and forth and covering entire stories? When we finish here with the kings of Judah and we go back, there are five different Israelite kings that reign uh, at the same time as Asa reigns over Judah. Okay. It spans a long time. He has a 40-year reign. And so I just wanted to throw that out there to get a feel for this. But notice here, he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Absalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father has done. He put away all the male cult prostitutes out of the land, removed all the idols his fathers made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother, because she had made an abominable image from the Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts of silver and gold and vessels. And so we see a reversal here. Unlike his father, unlike his grandfather, he seeks to bring about restoration to Israel, drives all of the idolatry out. He leaves the high places standing, and that's told us. But in general, there's a complete religious overturning here. And also with that, there's a, complete, uh, a beginning of a return to wealth. He starts to stock. He takes all of the wealth that has been used for idolatrous purposes and bring it back. And then he brings his own wealth and starts to rebuild these things. Now notice here in verse 16, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. We haven't met Basha here. We will when we return and get his side of the story. Um, but they continue to war. Verse 17, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah. Side note, that's pretty darn close to Jerusalem. That's a pretty significant inroad into the land of Judah where he sets up a fortress. You know, he's pushing the boundary of Israel here. Okay. Um, built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to King Asa, king of Judah. So he's playing gatekeeper. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servant. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, 
the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, let there be a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And so here he goes to a foreign king who's ruling over Syria and he bribes him to break the covenant he has with Israel and join Judah's forces. Now that is a misstep. In fact, it's that choice in the long run, in the broad geopolitical happening of this book that is going to lead to significant problems. But the problem here is where he goes for help. Okay. The prophets warn Israel that Egypt which was always a significant power just to the south of Israel, was like a broken spear. And if you tried to lean your weight on it, it would pierce your hand. Okay. Isaiah says, do not trust in princes. But Asa, he doesn't get that message. He's wholly devoted to the Lord, but when the fire hits the fan and he's, you know, the enemies are closing in, he goes, I've got to do something. And so he comes with a plan which just looks like any other plan that we would find politically. And so, verse 20, Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel-Beth-Makkah, and Shinaroth with all the land of Naphtali. In other words, Syria now has conquered parts of Israel's promised land paid by a Judean king. It's not ideal. It's not how things are supposed to be. Verse 21, when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Tizra. Okay, he's got other problems, so he backs off. King Asa made a proclamation, all Judah, none was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its tim timber with Basha had been building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Okay, and so smartly, he takes this half-finished fortress on his border, dismantles it, and builds his own fortresses in better places. Okay. Um, verse 23, now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did in the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Now notice, that's not stated with any form of judgment or consequence. It's just laid out there. And it may be that there's a relationship between the things we've been reading, and we will see significant old age screw-ups later on with physical malady consequences. But here it's just left on the table. It's just part of his life. But verse 24, Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His father and Jeho Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now we jump back to Nadab. Remember, Nadab was where we left things in Israel. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years. You see the difference there? How long was the last reign we looked at in Judah? Forty years. Asa, the one whose line is supposed to be wrapped out, only makes it two years, right? We should be expecting, this is foreboding, it's foreshadowing. We should be going, wait a minute, why? And so then we learn what happened, verse 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father in the sin which he made Israel to sin. Now, God has already laid out what consequences are going to be to Jeroboam's household, and that directly affects uh, Nadab, but he does the same. We can't accuse God of being unjust here or bringing, uh, as the prophets say, God never does, the sins of the fathers upon the children, visiting their sins upon the children. That's not what's going on. 
there's a strong tension in this book between God's sovereign plan and his all-knowing future speaking of that plan and carrying it out and the free will of human beings, okay? And he makes his own choices and he chooses the path of his father. And so he reigns for two years uh, and he walked in the way of his father in the sin which he made Israel to sin. He continues the idol worship at Bethel. Verse 27, Basha, the son of Ahijah, okay, notice that, from the house of Issachar, completely different person, not from the household of Jeroboam, okay, uh, struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So the king goes to fight against the Philistines. He's laying siege against the city, and somewhere in the heat of battle, Basha just takes him out. Okay, just right there on the battlefield. So, verse 28, Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. Okay, notice what we see here. What have we been seeing? How do people become kings in Israel so far? A prophet comes and says, God has a plan for you. It's not what happens here. It's just bloodlust and power hungry uh, and opportunistic. And so he becomes king. Verse 29, as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam, right? He doesn't want anyone who has legitimacy to the throne to live. So just as was promised, the whole, life, uh, whole family of Jeroboam is cut off and not given a, bur uh, a burial. And so he left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nabad and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days, which we already knew, right? And so, verse 33, in the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tisra, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And so the pattern repeats. New family line, this from Issachar, new king in his place, but he does all the same things. It's a change of power, but it's not a change of direction. And so, chapter 16, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Basha, saying, since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking to me anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He says, you've done the same thing. I'm going to bring about the same consequences. Okay. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone who dies in the field of the birds of heaven shall eat. One more principle we should nail down here, which is a significant one. God is completely capable of using someone to bring judgment and then judging the instrument of his judgment. God's capable of doing that justly and fully. Doing God's will does not give you a free pass. And the same thing is true of Babylon. God warns what Babylon is going to do to Judah, and then they do it, and God says, Babylon, because you've done this to Judah, here are the consequences. Okay. And so, nonetheless here, he continues on in the same way. There's no repentance, and so he's given the same consequence. Verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Basha 
uh, and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Tizra, and Ella his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Haniah, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. Notice that? Also because he destroyed it. It's both what God said would happen and his choice that leads to judgment. Okay. Verse 8, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ella, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel and Tizra, and he reigned two years. Again, uh-oh, right? Only two years, just like we saw um, uh, with Nadab. It's happening to Basha's son now. He reigns two years. Verse 9, but his servant Zibri, Zimri, commander of his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Tizra, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azra, who was over the house of Tizra. So at least, uh, at least Nadab lies, or dies on the front lines. Here, Basha's son, Ella, he dies in a drunken stupor, killed by one of his own generals who just wants the throne. Okay. However, don't get attached to Zimri. His servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Tizra, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azra, who was over the household of Tizra. Verse 10. Zimri came and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he seated himself on the throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or friends. Thus, Zimri destroyed the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. But notice this, uh, sorry, verse 13. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah's son, which they sinned and which made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord their God to Israel to anger with their idols. Okay, so notice here, on Judah's reign, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the way down the line, one lineage, but now we're in our third dynasty in Israel and the third king in Judah because of all of this turmoil. Verse 14, Now the rest of the acts of Ella and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now notice this, In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tizra. Okay? He has just enough time to kill all of the heirs to the throne. He finishes off the week and then something goes wrong. And here's what it is. The troops were accounted encamped against Gibbethon. That's the same place they were fighting two kings ago, okay? Wars are lasting longer in Israel than their kings are, okay? But they're there, and they hear about this assassination, and notice what they do. The troops who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri the commander of the army king over Israel that day in the camp. In other words, we have two kings now, okay? So, verse 17, Omri went up to Gibbethon. Remember, he's with the entire army and has all of their support and all Israel with him. And they besieged Tizra. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over with him and f with fire and died, which is about as Lord of the Rings as it gets, right? He recognizes he's stuck. And so he just burns the castle alive with him in it alive, commits suicide instead of facing his enemies. Verse 19, because of his sins that he committed, doing evil inside of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam for a sin which he committed in making Israel to sin. Now, let's be clear here. Seven days is not a lot of time for him to be a king like the kings before him. 
but we can expect that from the general pattern of his life, right? Oh, how did you become king? Uh, yeah, my, the old king got drunk and I slit his throat, right? It's not a good start, but it's only seven days and then he's replaced with Omri. Now, Omri's line is going to be the longest lasting dynasty in Israel. It's going to be stable, but it's going to be stable in its idolatry as well. Okay, and so verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. Do you see what's happening here? There's no system of government anymore. And so here is another guy, Tibni, and they go, well, you like Omri, and they liked Zimri, but we like Tibni, and we want him to be king. And so he's just taken the throne, and there's already another contender for the throne, right? Just makes me think of worldwide wrestling. That's, that's what this is like. And so, however, verse 22, the people who followed Omri overcame the people who fo- followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. He's now taken out two contenders and so nobody, nobody gets in the way now. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tizra. Now, why, why only six years in Tizra? As we're going to see, he's going to build a new place. Why? Because the palace in Tizra is an ash heap, right? That's the throne he inherited. The, the royal city was sieged on the outside and burned on the inside, and so he needs something new, and so he sets up a new city. Verse 24, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. He fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of the Shemer, the owner of the hill. Samaria will be the capital of Israel from here on out, okay? But it begins with Omri. A few more verses, 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him, Okay. So once again, not progress, except progress towards judgment. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and the sins he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. Notice the pattern now. How little do we know about these kings and what they did? We know when they started. We know when they ended. We may know one or two things that happen along the way, but even when the reigns are long, we know very little because the point of the author here is not as historian of Israel, but as historian of Israel's downfall. And so the primary thing, what's been repeated every time, it's the assessment of the king. Now, we tend to place the understanding of modern politics in a different place. What is it that determines the political future of nations? The perspective of the author of Kings is clear. It's God's viewpoint. It's their faithfulness that stands and falls, right? Let's finish here with one last king. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over all Israel for 22 years. There's longevity, right? And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, where he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah, 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So now we're introduced to Ahab, and we get the sentence up front. Bad king. In fact, worst king so far. But we're actually going to spend chapters in the life of Ahab. The pattern is going to be broken here. And so the author does something so interesting. He finishes by recognizing a random character. Notice that Ahab, Ahab, and then in his days, Heel, the son of Bethel, just a dude, built Jericho. It says he laid his foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. Now, we know what this practice is from archaeology. It means for the protection of the city and the favor of the gods that he killed his children and put their corpses in the cornerstones of the city he built. Okay, This is what Baal and Molech and the gods of the Canaanites were all about. Uh, And so this is happening in Israel as this guy sets up this new city. But why are we told it here? Because, notice verse uh, 34, this happens in Jericho, uh, and then it says here, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. All the way back when Joshua destroyed Jericho the first time, he said, may the man who sets up this city do it at the cost of his children. And here we see the fulfillment of that. Now, why are we told that? Because there's a lot of history between then and now, but God's word still stands. And we're going to need that for the rule of Ahab. Because it's going to look like a whole lot of evil. Remember, Elijah gets to a point where he just says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only true Israelite in all of the land. God has just abandoned us. I'm it. And he's going to be wrong. There's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, but it's a remnant. It's a small part of Israel. But God's word was faithful in Joshua's day, hundreds of years before this. uh, And it's going to be so uh, here. Now, I don't feel the need to draw all the threads together because there's really only one. When God speaks, it is truth and it is inevitable and it will happen. There's a foolishness in the human heart that stands against the God who made us. It just doesn't make any sense. And as we see here, even though we would like to feign ignorance, even though we'd like to say we didn't know better or we didn't know it was that big of a deal or I was distracted by these other things, in our heart of hearts, so often, and I'm speaking from personal experience, we know that we know that we know. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to die because there's something in us that is so rebellious against God, the only way for it to be removed is through death. And the only way for us to live through death is through resurrection. There's that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which is loving. I just love quoting it. I'm not sure I actually believe it. I don't think it's rightly formed. But he says, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't think that's the best way to put it. I don't think gradually things are getting more and more just. But I do believe that it ends in justice because that justice is rooted in the promises and the word of God. And he's faithful and true. Let's pray.
Father, we know because not just of David, but because of the son of David, you don't always bring about full consequence on us. You may discipline us, but you do not punish us. There's no wrath, no judgment for us, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet you discipline us because you love us. And so you allow things into your life by your hand that hurt, although their intention is to heal. And we recognize, as the author of Hebrews says, that nobody enjoys discipline while it's going on. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be stubborn, but we would be pliable in repentance, swift to turn around, that we would come to like the son in Jesus' parable who's eating with the pigs and comes to himself and goes, it was better in my father's house. And we thank you, Lord, even though sometimes we don't understand it, even though sometimes we question it, we thank you that you're so faithful to keep your word. And we know that the sum total of your word, all of it is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so although you speak a word of judgment to the world, you also speak a better word, a word of free and full pardon if we'll only receive the work that you've done. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so we thank you for its presence in our life. Help us to see it for what it is, and to bend the knee, and to bow the head, and to repent. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.